We come now to the final part of our study of the covenants of God with men, and that is the new covenant as we find it in the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation itself uses the word covenant only once. In chapter 11, verse 19, where it refers to the Ark of the Covenant that stood in the most holy place of the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. But we're going to be looking especially at Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. John here describes the New Jerusalem, and as he describes the New Jerusalem, he describes it especially in covenantal terms. This is covenantal language that we find here. And he describes this uh, New Jerusalem in such terms as make it clear that he is talking about the ultimate fulfillment of the promises of God regarding this New Jerusalem in the Old Testament. Beginning, therefore, with Revelation 21, verse 1, John says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. And now, so what John is seeing here in verse 1 is a new heaven and a new earth. And this is itself related to the covenant promises of God in the Old Testament. This new heavens and new earth was implicit in the promises God made to Noah after the flood. His promise was that he would no longer destroy the earth with a flood. But as Peter points out in 2 Peter 3, what this means then is not that God will never again destroy the earth, but that the next time he destroys the earth, he will destroy it with fire and he will make a new heavens and a new earth. This promise of a new earth is implicit in Noah's inheritance of the new world which God had made by means of the flood and his place in that world. And our Lord Jesus Christ himself associates this uh, promise to Noah and the uh, life of Noah with the end times the times just before he makes heaven and earth new. We find explicit promises of the new heavens and the new earth also in the prophecy of Isaiah. First of all, chapters 65, verses 17 to 19. There the prophet says, or God says through the prophet, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. And it's interesting that John takes over some of this language also in Revelation 21 and 22. He speaks of no more tears. He speaks of Jerusalem and of the perfection of Jerusalem. And he talks about the uh, joy of the people of God in that city. And Isaiah mentions this new heavens and new earth also in chapter 66, verse 22. 
For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. Now it's important that we remember about those promises in Isaiah, that Isaiah speaks frequently of the new covenant in especially the last half of his prophecy. And all these promises of God that we find in the last half of the prophecy of Isaiah may therefore be taken as related to that new covenant of which Isaiah is speaking. But John does not focus our attention especially on the new heavens and the new earth. After mentioning the new heavens and new earth in verse 1, he goes on immediately to talk about the new Jerusalem in verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This new Jerusalem itself is the fulfillment of the promises of God related to his people and the inheritance of his people in the Old Testament. Jerusalem was the capital and center of that promised inheritance, the place where God's temp temple was, the place also where his throne was and the place from which, therefore, he ruled over the nations of the earth. And when he speaks, therefore, of the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, he speaks of the fulfillment of that old Jerusalem, which was a ceremonial place, and he speaks of the fulfillment of all the promises tied up in that new Jerusalem. When the Lord prophesied the restoration of the land of Israel to his people during Old Testament times, he promised also the restoration of Jerusalem. We've already seen in Isaiah 65 that when Isaiah talks about the new heavens and the new earth, he also goes on immediately to talk about Jerusalem and the restoration of Jerusalem. And you can find the same kind of theme throughout the prophets, but we're going to look only at a couple of passages in Isaiah. First, Isaiah 44, verse 28. And we look at that passage because it brings together the temple and Jerusalem. God is here talking about Cyrus, the king of Persia, who will send the people of Israel back to their own land and allow them to rebuild their city and the temple. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Again, in Isaiah chapter 52, verses 1 and 2. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. That's language similar to what John uh, talks about in Revelation 21. Shake yourself from the dust, arise, sit down, O Jerusalem, loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. 
and that he's talking about not just the rebuilding of the physical city of Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, but about the new Jerusalem is clear because he says, the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. And Zion shall be loosed from the bonds of her neck. Also in chapter 52, verse 9, break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. These prophecies have their fulfillment in the prophecy of John in Revelation chapter 21. And it's then on this new Jerusalem that John focuses our attention in the rest of chapter 21 and the first few verses of chapter 22. He describes the new Jerusalem, and he describes this new Jerusalem as a very glorious city, a city much more glorious than the old city of Jerusalem. His uh, description of this city is clearly a symbolic description. That is, he's not saying what that city is going to be physically like. He's using symbols to teach us what that city is spiritually like. So he says already in verse uh, 2 that he saw this new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, out of heaven, from God. And of course, that indicates to us that this is essentially a heavenly city and that the beginning of the building of this city takes place here and now in this world. John is not looking just to the future, but he's also talking about the present, the New Testament dispensation in which Christ has already begun to build this new Jerusalem. Remember what the apostle says in Hebrews chapter 12, you have come to Mount Zion and to the heavenly Jerusalem. That heavenly Jerusalem, though it does not belong by its character to this earthly creation, is nevertheless found for a time in this earthly creation. And that's what John is seeing here. He's seeing that new Jerusalem established first on earth, but he's also seeing it in its glory, in its final uh, perfection. And that's clear from the rest of the description. He also says about this new Jerusalem that she is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is also covenantal language. Remember what God said to his people in Ezekiel chapter 16. He talked about finding this child uh, abandoned in the wilderness and wallowing in her blood. He took the child, he cleaned the child up, he nurtured the child uh, until she grew to be a woman. He adorned her with royal garments and he married her. But she was unfaithful to him. And nevertheless, at the end of Ezekiel 16, he says, I will take you back again. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. This city, therefore, is the bride of God. We see that same image used in verse 9 of Revelation 21. 
Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. In her coming, thirdly, the tabernacle of God is with men. That's in verse 3 of this chapter. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. A very clear reference to the promise to Abraham and to the tabernacle and temple of the Old Testament, the Old Testament fulfillment of that promise. I will be your God, and you will be my people. So this is uh, John then seeing the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, which fills that new heaven and new earth, in covenantal language. Now, there's many other things that belong to this description that emphasize the glory of this new Jerusalem. There is, for example, the fact that he gives the water of life to the thirsty, and to them also he gives the inheritance of all things. That word inheritance is also a covenantal term. God promised his people an inheritance. He speaks here of the um, people of God being his son, his children, and of being the God of his son. That's Christ who is the fulfillment of these promises of God. All the wicked will be cast into the lake of fire, which will be the second death. That's the purification of this city of God, which Isaiah talked about in chapter 52. This city is built on a great and high mountain. Her power and glory are so great that she is exalted above all the nations of the earth. The glory of God dwells in her. That's also covenantal language especially associated with the temple and the tabernacle. She has a great and high wall. She's well defended from her enemies. She has 12 gates with the names of the 12 tribes inscribed on them. That 12 is the number of the covenant people, and the 12 tribes indicates that this city includes the believing Jews from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The city is served by angels whom God has appointed to be ministers to the heirs of salvation. The city has 12 foundations, again a covenantal number, indicating the uh, church of the New Testament. These 12 foundations are the 12 apostles who preached the gospel not only to the Jews but also to the Gentiles. The city is a square 12,000 furlongs wide, 12,000 long, and 12,000 high. That's the number of perfection. But notice again that number 12 is in there, the number of Israel and the number of the church. This was also the shape of the most holy place in the temple. 
Her wall is of 144 cubits. I, a multiple of 12, the number 12, enters into this again. Jewels and gold adorn her. She, the riches and glory of this city are very great because God has promised to bring the wealth of the nations to her. She has no need of a temple, verse 22, because the Lord and the Lamb are the temple of it. This is the temple, the dwelling of God with his people. She has no sun or moon because God and the Lamb illuminate it day and night. The nations of the saved live there and bring their glory to it. That is, the Gentiles come into this city along with the believing Jews. So all these uh, prophecies, especially in the prophet of Isaiah, about the Gentiles being included in the covenant and promises of God, and the, the word of the apostle in Ephesians chapter 2 about the Gentiles and Jews being created by God as one new man in the, Old Testament, in the New Testament are fulfilled here in this new Jerusalem. There is nothing that defiles this city, and only the elect of God are found there, the, those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This uh, description of the new Jerusalem carries on into chapter 22. Proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb is the river of life. And the nations drink of this river of life. The tree of life is in the streets of this city and on either side of the river. And this tree bears 12 fruits, one for each month of the year, to feed the nations. These 12 fruits, again, are symbolic of the church and of the people of God. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. There's no more curse there, but the people of God serve God perfectly in that city. So as we look at the description of the New Jerusalem, we see the fulfillment of covenantal promises from the Old Testament. We see that God is fulfilling all that he spoke of. We see the great glory of those promises as John seeks to communicate them through the symbolic language uh, of this uh, passage. We see not only, however, the Old Testament promises, but we see the present situation of the church in the world. And that would be an encouragement to the saints who would soon see, or who had already seen, depending on when Revelation was written, the destruction of Jerusalem. That would be a very significant event, especially for the Jewish believers. What does that mean? Well, it means that the old covenant is abrogated, but it does not mean the end of Jerusalem. Rather, it means that God is establishing and building the new Jerusalem. So we see the present time, but we also see the future the church as she will be in the end, terrible as an army with banners. So the Holy Spirit then is here in Revelation 21, describing the whole work of God in the new creation in covenantal language. The covenant lies at the heart of God's work. He promises and he fulfills. He promises salvation. 
he fulfills his promises of salvation. We may, in fact, I think, say that the covenant of God is equivalent to the gospel. The covenant is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the promises of God in Christ. In fact, then, in the light of that, I think it would be possible to write a dogmatics, a complete dogmatics, under the heading covenantal theology. As you looked at the doctrine of Scripture, for example, you could uh, describe the Scriptures from the um, biblical uh, teaching as God giving a covenantal document to his people, a last will and testament in which he declares his purposes for his heirs. When you come to the heading of theology, the doctrine of God, you could talk about how God is the covenant God in himself, as the three persons exist for eternally among themselves in perfect fellowship. He is the covenant God in himself, and he is the covenant-making God. When you come to the doctrine of man, anthropology, you could talk about how God made man in covenant, but how man broke that covenant and fell, and then how God, of course, in Genesis 3, verse 15, established the covenant of grace. In Christology, the doctrine of Christ, we see how God sent Christ to be the covenant, his covenant with his people, and the surety and mediator of the covenant. In soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, by covenant, the Lord saves and brings into covenant relationship, becomes the God of his people, and they, his people, In ecclesiology, we could talk about how he makes for himself a covenantal people. In eschatology, how he fulfills his covenant in the end times. This covenant of God, therefore, these promises of God, and the fulfillment of all these promises, is our hope. Our hope which is wrapped up in Christ, the one who is the fulfillment of God's covenant in the Old Testament, and of the New Covenant in the New Testament. He is the perfection of the covenant relationship in which God becomes our God and we his people. He himself is our God and we are his people. So then by way of uh, summarizing our study of the doctrine of the covenant, I would like to make 10 points about what we've talked about throughout these um, last weeks and months. It would be nice if it were 12 points, that would be a covenantal number, but I don't like to just stretch things out artificially in order to come to that number, so we have 10 points. Still a number of perfection in the scriptures, of course. So first of all then, the first point, The covenants of God with men are promises confirmed with oaths, signs, and formal ceremonies. The covenant with Noah was confirmed with the sign of the rainbow, 
the covenants with Abraham, with the cutting of the animals and that ceremony that Abraham saw in his dream, Genesis chapter 15, and the sign of circumcision. The covenant with Moses was uh, accompanied with the ceremonies of the law, but especially, as we saw, with the sign of the Sabbath day. The covenant with David was confirmed with an oath. You can read about that oath of God in Psalm 89. And the new covenant that God makes in the Old Testament also has its signs, the Lord's Supper and baptism. In all of these things, the Lord is confirming his promises so that we may have a strong consolation upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So that's first. The covenant Covenants of God with men are promises confirmed with oaths, signs, and formal ceremonies. The second point is that the covenants with, of God with men are unilateral. That is, they are always his covenants. Whenever he comes to make covenant with his people, he does not say to them, let us make a covenant, but he says, I make my covenant with you. They are his covenants. And he establishes those covenants. He lays upon his people obligations in those covenants, but he is the one who establishes them. And he maintains them also in spite of the many times his people break them. They often sinned against him. They often broke his covenant. And yet he did not forget his promise nor abandon them and let them cease to be his people. So that's second, the covenants of God with men are unilateral. Thirdly, the covenants of God with men are both many and one. They are many in the sense that he goes through many covenant makings with his people. There's Genesis 3 verse 15. There are two covenants with Noah, Genesis 6 and Genesis 9. We might speak of three covenants with Abraham. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and 17. Two with Israel in Exodus chapter 20 and following, and also in Deuteronomy just before they entered the land, and one with David, so as well as the new covenant in the New Testament. So there are many covenants of God with his people, many covenant makings, but they are also one. All these different covenants are one. And they are one because they all speak of Christ ultimately. And they all are fulfilled in Christ. And the central promise of them all is, I will be your God and you shall be my people. This was the purpose of God from the very beginning that he made covenant to form a people for himself from the fallen human race and to dwell among them to be their God. Their character in all of them is that he makes his promises and confirms those promises with the oaths sworn by himself. So that's the third point. The covenants of God with, many, uh, with men are both many and one. The fourth point, which we can make to summarize the teaching of the scriptures on the, script, on the covenants, is that the promises made in early covenants continue and are enriched in later covenants. 
enriched, or perhaps we can say refined. Thus we find in Genesis 3 verse 15 that God talks about a seed of the woman. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And this promise becomes more specific, more refined when God comes to Abraham and he singles Abraham out of all the people on the face of the earth as the one with whom he will make his covenant. And he speaks of Abraham's seed. And that seed is Isaac, not Ishmael. And ultimately, as the Apostle Paul says in Genesis in Galatians 3, verse 16, that seed is Christ himself. So these promises then become uh, uh, enriched and refined in later covenants. This is true also of the Sabbath. The Adam and Eve had a Sabbath in the garden, but God enriched that Sabbath at the time of the establishment of his covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, and he perfects that Sabbath in the new covenant as we enter the eternal Sabbath with our Lord Jesus Christ. So the promises do not change. The promises remain the same. All that God spoke from the very beginning continues in all the covenants that follow. And he sometimes enriches those promises or he refines those promises. But nevertheless, all the promises remain and continue. Nothing falls away. There's no break then, no essential break from one covenant to the next. It's God continuing his promises, enriching his promises, uh, refining his promises, revealing more and more of the glory of those promises to his people. Not only do we find that those promises continue, but as we look at uh, successive covenants, we see that those successive covenants sometimes fulfill promises from earlier covenants. Thus, uh, in uh, speaking to Abraham, God talked about the inheritance of the land. And that promise to Abraham meant both that he would inherit the land of Canaan, in which he was a sojourner, and it spoke of the heavenly Canaan. He looked for a city which has foundations. His eye was fixed on the heavenly uh, fulfillment of that promise, though there was an intermediate fulfillment in the inheritance of the land of Canaan. And you can see this in other aspects of the covenants too, that as God made new covenants, he fulfilled in part promises from earlier covenants. So that's the fifth point that later covenants fulfilled, in part, promises from early, earlier covenants. God also added new promises <coughs> with these new covenants. So when it came time for him to make covenant with Abraham, after the covenants with Adam and Eve and with Noah, God spoke to Abraham of the inheritance of the land, of all nations being blessed in him, and of kings being born from him. These were promises he had not spoken of before. 
And when it came time for him to make a covenant with David, he spoke of one eternal king to sit on David's throne forever. In fact, David himself was in part a fulfillment of the promise of God to Abraham that kings would come from him. But David is not the ultimate king, as God's covenant with him makes clear. Seventh, all the covenants were fulfilled and are being fulfilled in Christ, in the new covenant. Eighth, one of the great changes accomplished in the new covenant was the calling of the Gentiles and the making of Jews and Gentiles into one new man, as the Apostle Paul teaches us in Ephesians chapter 2. There is one people of God from both Old and New Testaments, believing Jews and Gentiles, as God has chosen out of both a people for himself. Ninth, the completion of God's covenantal work will be in the perfecting of the new creation. The new creation began with the incarnation of the Son of God, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. That work of making this new creation continues now in the preaching of the gospel and especially in the work of regeneration, the making of new creatures in Christ, and in the forming of this new people, this one new man in Christ. But this work will be completed only when Christ returns. So there's continuity from the very beginning, from Genesis 3, verse 15, all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. God was already talking in Genesis 3, verse 15, about the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, of which we read in Revelation 21 and 22. And finally, then, the tenth point, the new covenant of God in Christ and the full realization of that covenant in the new heavens and the new earth was the purpose of God, therefore, from the very beginning. All the covenants pointed to Christ. He is the seed of the woman who has victory over the serpent and his seed. He is the beginning of the new creation, as implied in Genesis 6 and 9. He is the seed of Abraham, Genesis 15 and 17. He is the eternal king who sits on David's throne forever. He is the temple of God and the lamb of the sacrifices and the one who brings in the eternal Sabbath. Our Joshua who gives us rest in the land of rest. From the very beginning, then, God's eternal purpose was this new creation. In fact, we may even say, I think, that the purpose of God from eternity, before his creation of the world and his covenant with Adam and Eve in the garden, therefore, was the covenant of redemption, the covenant of grace in Christ Jesus. He never intended that that first creation continue or that that relationship which he had with Adam and Eve in the garden continue. His purpose was from the very beginning, even at that time, the glorifying of his name in Jesus Christ, in whom he would establish a new covenant with a new human race and make a new heavens and a new earth for that new human race 
to dwell in. His purpose, ultimately, therefore, is the glory of his name through the fulfillment of his covenant in Christ Jesus, our Lord. May God bless you with his word.